same in the next chapter, 45. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whom I grasp by the right hand, to subdue nations before him, to endure the loins of rulers, opening doors ahead of him, letting no gates remain shut. I will go before you and level all obstacles. I will break in pieces brazen doors and cut through iron bars. It's physical or temporal. And this is the temporal aspect of the servant's mission. As chapter 42 about the servant was the spiritual aspect of the servant's mission. Why does he divide them up? Well, Moses did a physical thing at the Exodus, but he also did a spiritual thing in tutoring Israel in the wilderness, right? So Isaiah here has divided them, showing that this Cyrus person is not a complete figure. He's only half of the equation. He's only the temporal aspect. Same with the servant earlier on. He was only half of the equation. That was only the spiritual aspect. Is one aspect complete without the other? No. Isaiah has divided these types, and yet he also links them because he shows by that very division that the one is not complete without the other. And that leads us to understand that we have to read all of these servant passages together in order to get the ideal, in order to get the complete picture. So the scholars who focus on Cyrus and go off on a tangent, they're like those confused idolaters there that retreat in utter confusion because they see much, but really they don't see it. And they hear much, but they really don't hear it. They're not discerning enough to see that there is much more going on here than just some name from a hundred years after the time of Isaiah. And we see, as we saw in the end of chapter 44 there, a compound of Moses and Cyrus. Here we see also a compound between Cyrus and someone else. Cyrus is mentioned by name a second time. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus whom I grasp by the right hand. Was Cyrus anointed of God anciently? No. Who was anointed? The king of Israel was anointed. He's called the Lord's anointed. When Saul is king, David will not lift his hand against the Lord's anointed, even though Saul persecuted him. The point is that the king was called the anointed one of God, the Messiah. Messiah in Hebrew, Mashiach, means anointed one. So it says, Thus says the Lord to his Messiah in Hebrew, or to his anointed, to Cyrus, whom I grasp by the right hand. Here we have a compound, or fusion, of the Israelite king, King David. King David was called the Lord's anointed, the one who was in the Lord's favor. Saul was not. And Cyrus, another compound. Not a pure historical person neither here nor in chapter 44, whom I grasped by the right hand. But we also saw that he grasped the servant by the right hand earlier on. Why? Because the same individual. These are not two individuals. This is just the temporal aspect here and the spiritual aspect we read earlier. To subdue nations before him. The grasping of the hand is a royal accession motif and it is an empowerment for a purpose so that the servant might fulfill a mission. When the Lord names him, grasps him by the right hand, or calls him, and so forth, those are all empowerments for a purpose, to empower him to fulfill his role as deliverer. And part of that deliverance is physical, to subdue nations before him, to endure the loins of rulers, opening doors ahead of him, letting no gates remain shut. If he's going to lead them in the exodus, He's going to have to release them from bondage 
and he's going to have to meet with the opposition that Pharaoh or whoever is in power at the time will present, even nations and rulers, implying that there are going to be closed doors, the gates are going to be shut, and it seems like he's never going to be able to deliver them. But when God empowers him, those things will present no obstacle. Just like the fire and the waters that they walk through, there will be no obstacle. I will go before you and level all obstacles. In one of the Hebrew prophets, it mentions that one goes at the head of them in the Exodus like Moses and breaks through, opens the gates, breaks through the opposition. And that's the servant that does that. I will go before you and level all obstacles. The servant goes before them, as we see in many places, but it's really the Lord who's doing it. The servant really has no power in himself. God empowers him. Moses could have stood there all day holding his rod out over the Red Sea if God had not turned the waters away. And so it is here. I will break in pieces brazen doors and cut through iron bars, which indicates that perhaps the iron curtain or some equivalent thing will happen again. Otherwise, why mention it? There's going to be that kind of opposition again. Iron bars indicates prison, and brazen doors, they're not easy to break through. It implies that there's going to be severe bondage and captivity from which the people are going to be delivered, just like the wall in East Germany or in East Berlin. I will give you hidden treasures and secret hoards of wealth, meaning physical, literal wealth, hoards that have been hoarded up by people perhaps unrighteously in the past, or perhaps righteously, and they will all be made available. They've been kept in reserve. Have you often heard of stories of people who've tried to dig up buried treasures and found that the treasures became slippery and you couldn't get them? They were there. Those treasures have been hidden and kept in reserve for that time, and they'll support a different kind of economy, an economic structure that supports the work of God rather than the manufacture of idols that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. Now here, it's Cyrus who's called by name. And that calling by name is another one of those motifs like the grasping of the hand that implies empowerment. But we also saw that God calls the corporate servant by name. In chapter 43, verse 1, it talks about Israel and Jacob For I have redeemed you, I have called you by name in your mind. That implies divine empowerment. And that empowerment, like I said at that time, occurs when they pass a test, when the person being called or grasped by the hand passes the test of loyalty to the Lord. Then they ascend the spiritual ladder. When they're empowered in that way, that is their rebirth. That's when they're recreated on a higher level of the spiritual ladder. They were not what they were before. That's why he calls it creation. If you ascend the spiritual ladder and you're on a higher spiritual level, then you're no longer the same person you used to be. You're created again. You're created anew. That new person or that new creation means that the old one has died. The allegory of Christ, of the seed, is like that. The seed dies so that the plant may live. It's no longer a seed. It's a plant now. You're no longer whoever you used to be you're now this higher person who's empowered, who's called by a new name, who's grasped by the hand. Every time one ascends a spiritual ladder, 
they receive a new name. They're no longer Jacob or Israel when they become Zion or Jerusalem. They're no longer Zion or Jerusalem when they become his servant or son, and so forth. This Cyrus figure, who's also a David figure, who's also a Moses figure, is here empowered by the Lord upon passing some kind of test of loyalty. Some wonder what kind of test of loyalty that may be. Well, in chapter 52, he's marred. He persists in fulfilling his mission to the extent that he's even marred and almost dies, showing his loyalty to the Lord and his valor as being God's witness. When they do that to him, then the Lord heals him and empowers him and gives him power over his enemies like that of Moses. Moses did this. So the servant is like Moses, having that kind of power. Moses had more power than Pharaoh, and so does this servant have more power than the rulers and nations of the world. Verse 4, But this empowerment is not to squander on his lusts, on himself. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. Not for your own sake. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen, I call you by name. Your whole mission is to them. I named you when yet you knew me not. This may be alluding to another naming, perhaps some kind of foreordination, because in chapter 49, the servant says, Before I was in my mother's womb, he mentioned me by name. The Lord called me before I was in the belly. It appears as if there is a double naming, one before he's born, and another now that he's passed this test and he's empowered to do these works. And it's all about redeeming Jacob or Israel, that category of the spiritual ladder that is still in a lost and fallen state, that needs delivering from captivity, that needs enlightening about the attributes of God, needs indoctrination, needs schooling the law and word of God, the terms of the covenant. Verse 5, I am the Lord, there is none other. Apart from me there is no God. I girded you up when yet you knew me not. Again, alluding to some kind of foreordination. Because the not knowing God implies that he did not yet have a covenant relationship or that the covenant was not yet confirmed upon him like it is now. If you have a covenant relationship with somebody, then you know them. Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore a son, so forth. That defines a covenant relationship. Verse 6, that men from where the sun rises to where it sets may know that without me there is nothing, that I am the Lord and that there is none other. So somehow the servant becomes an example to men everywhere of God's power. Just the same as Moses was to all the nations, surrounding nations, of God's power. And that nothing could stand against God and his servant and his people. I girded you up. But he ungirds the loins of rulers in verse 1. So God empowers him, and he disempowers them, showing the contrast between the rulers and nations of the world, the great ones of the world who are put down when the Lord's servant is girded up. It kind of puts everybody in their place. Apart from him, there is no God. There is no power. That men from where the sun rises to where it sets may know that without me there is nothing, 
that I am the Lord and that there is none other. These others are not gods. The gods of the Orient are not gods. There is no other but the God of Israel. That's going to become very clear at some point throughout the world. Verse 7, I fashion light and form darkness. I occasion peace and cause calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. The God who empowers his servant, describing God's attributes, but also the fact that the Lord forms or fashions the servant who is the light. He appointed them as a light to the nations in chapter 42. And he also forms darkness, which is the king of Assyria, an antichrist type, at the opposite end of the spectrum. Because there is opposition in all things, and only through that opposition can people choose. If there was um, no opposition between light and darkness, people wouldn't be able to choose between the two. They would be in some kind of limbo and stay there. I occasion peace and cause calamity, or I create peace and cause calamity. In Hebrew, the word calamity is ra'ah, which also means evil. I think the King James says the Lord creates evil, but he doesn't really create evil, and he doesn't really create darkness either. If people choose evil, then evil consequences will follow. If they break the terms of the covenant, then they come under covenant curses, and that is the evil or calamity that they must suffer. If people don't choose the light, they end up in darkness. It is a state in which they choose themselves. God doesn't create darkness. But if people choose darkness, they cannot exist in the light. And so a place has to be made for them, which is a place devoid of light. Not that God actually wants to do those things, but they're a consequence of people's choice. And that's part of the test, the test of loyalty in the face of that kind of opposition or adversity. Otherwise it wouldn't be a test. Otherwise it wouldn't be real ascent to a higher level on the spiritual ladder. There has to be a test of some kind, a rebirth from something lesser to something greater. I, the Lord, do all these things, and really what it's talking about there is covenant blessing and covenant curse. That's the bottom line of the light and darkness, the peace and calamity. And he wants covenant blessing for his children, as in the next verse. Rain down from above, O heavens, let the skies overflow with righteousness, so that the blessings may pour down. Fertility, plenty of food to eat, all the blessings that come in a bountiful society because of covenant keeping. Let the skies overflow with righteousness alludes to the servant's mission in the last days. The servant is the one who establishes Zion. And that's what's going on right here in Isaiah. Isaiah is the most Zion-oriented of all the prophets of God. The name Zion is mentioned more times in Isaiah than in any other book. Isaiah shows how Zion is formed. It is formed when the servant fulfills a mission to the Israel-level people and lifts him from an Israel or Jacob level to a Zion level. Then the Zion comes into being. And then the God of Israel, the King of Zion, comes and dwells among them. Rain down from above, O heavens, let the skies overflow with righteousness, because when the people keep covenant, God pours down the blessings. And that is not just physical imagery, but it's also symbolic of that. Let the earth receive it and salvation blossom. The whole purpose of God's plan is salvation and redemption. Salvation from a lost and fallen state, 
from a lesser state to a higher state. We come here and we find ourselves in a lesser sphere of things. This sojourn upon the earth allows us the possibility to ascend or progress. Isaiah calls it ascend from a lower to a higher level. That's salvation. Salvation from something less to something greater. Salvation actually from a damned state or cursed state, a state of covenant curse, to a state of covenant blessing. Where even death, which is a covenant curse that came through Adam's transgression, is overcome and becomes immortality in the millennium. Isaiah talks about that. Let the earth receive it and salvation blossom, let righteousness spring up forthwith. I, the Lord, create it. That is righteousness. In Hebrew, create him or it, referring back to righteousness. Righteousness being the name of the servant, because he personifies righteousness. And salvation in Isaiah being a name or personification of the Lord God himself. We've already seen that, how the Lord personifies salvation. He exemplifies salvation, and He is salvation. In order to partake of God's salvation, you must come to Him. He is it. He comes as salvation, later on in Isaiah. See your salvation comes, His reward with Him, His work preceding Him. 62.11 Salvation and righteousness work together. If you're righteous, you'll be saved. If you're not righteous, you'll not be saved. Righteousness is a precursor or precondition of salvation. Righteousness is also the forerunner of God's coming, who is salvation. The servant is the forerunner of His coming. These things have to spring up and then blossom. When a seed first springs up out of the earth, when the rain comes down and sends the charge, the negative charge, down to earth, and the H2O waters the soil, the seed sprouts and springs up. But it's still tender, right? It's still like this Jacob Israel category who's vacillating between idolatry and the false gods and the true God. It's still tender, but when it grows up, eventually it will blossom. And when it blossoms, that's salvation. That's when it's a full-grown plant and flower. Some plants fall by the wayside. Some dry up, some get trampled upon, some get eaten by the bugs. They don't all make it. But when they do make it, that is what it's like. Salvation is like that. We've lost some along the way, but some survived. And over them we will rejoice. I, the Lord, create it, or righteousness, or salvation. Creation motif. Woe to those in conflict with their maker, mere shards of earthenware pottery. This is a chaos motif. They're just broken shards, like clay, in the hands of the potter. This is at the other end of the spectrum. There are those who blossom and flower, and there are those who revert back to chaos. It could have gone either way. As though the clay were to say to him who molds it, What are you doing? Your hands have no skill for the work. Can you imagine if there was a potter making a thing out of a lump of clay, and suddenly the clay started telling him what to do? Started answering him back? Isaiah uses that motif, or that idea, to describe the wicked. As the servant comes along and he says, This is what God says. This is the way it should be. And those whom he's trying to mold that way answer him back. You don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're talking about. As though the clay were to say to him who molds it, What are you doing? Your hands have no skill for the work. They question what the servant does or what's going on. 
when God acts to bring about His righteousness and His salvation in the earth, then there's opposition. There's going to be opposition. And the Lord pronounces a woe or a curse upon them because they are in conflict with their Maker, the same Creator who authorizes and empowers His servant. Remember, the Creator of heaven and earth, whenever it mentions that creation, it mentions the servant. We'll see that in the next few verses. We've already seen it a couple of times. The hands are both hands, the left hand and the right hand. The servant is the right hand, and he's going to deliver people in an exodus. He's going to pull them out and deliver them from captivity and from calamity. The left hand is the hand that's going to smite the wicked. The king of Assyria will do that. And they're saying, no, he doesn't know what he's doing. The Lord works through his hands, through his emissaries, through his agents. They're agents of redemption and destruction, respectively. Woe to those who say to their father, what have you begotten? Or to the woman, what have you born? The same woe, or pronunciation of a covenant curse, and the paralleling of the woes parallels the Maker and the Father. You see that? Top of verse 9 and the top of verse 10. So that the Father there is who? The Maker. Who then is the woman? His wife. God the Father, God the Mother. It's right there. That's on one level, what we just said. Rhetorically, the woman is who? The woman Zion. Yes, the church is Zion also. We can't impose things in Isaiah. can't say, well, that's the church and this is so-and-so. How do you know? Well, I just think so. No, that doesn't work. We have to stay with Isaiah's context of things. And Isaiah identifies the woman throughout as the woman Zion. The harlot Babylon is another woman, but he calls the woman Zion. And she also begets, in chapter 66, which is cross-referenced there, she begets a nation born in a day, born in the day of judgment. That is the nation that comes out on the Exodus. Israel was born at the Exodus out of Egypt, so this nation is born at the Exodus out of Babylon in the latter days. And there are those who are opposed to this work. This is they were opposed to the Jewish Zionists when they try to reestablish themselves in the Promised Land, Palestine. So there will be those who are opposed to those who are trying to establish Zion in the end time. There will be those who fight against Zion and who answer back their God. Then we're the offspring of God, is that correct? It's implying that we're the offspring of God here. And that those who are the offspring of God, who are being reborn, who are experiencing rebirth on a higher level of the spiritual ladder, are getting opposition from those who are powers of chaos, who identify with the powers of chaos. The shards of earthenware pottery means that they're going to be broken. That those who present that opposition are going to be smashed. And they'll be good for nothing. Because a shard of earthenware pottery is good for nothing. Verse 11, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, their Maker. Here we have the Maker again, as we had in verse 9. So we have an A-B-A chiasm. Maker in verse 9, A. Father in verse 10, B. Maker, verse 11a. Who's the maker? The Father. The parallels of the two woes already tells you that, but here is a second confirmation. Will you ask me for signs concerning my children, 
or dictate to me about the deeds of my hands? So what is being begotten? His children are being begotten. And his children are the works of his hands or the deeds of his hands. We literally are the offspring of father and mother, spiritual father and spiritual mother, it's indicated here. And it is that particular seed of God that is meeting with opposition, implying that there are those who are not God's seed or his children who are being begotten. Perhaps they are the children of God, but they're not being born or reborn on a higher level. They choose not to. They choose instead to fight that scenario. They're asking for signs about what's going on. And what sign do they get? Their own destruction, eventually. They're trying to dictate to God what he should do, like the clay in the hands of the potter. Who do you suppose these people are? Well, we've already seen that the rulers of nations come under fire. We've already seen the wise men and the diviners And in chapter 41, we saw dignitaries. He shall come upon dignitaries as on mud, tread them as clay like a potter. That's the servant, verse 25 of chapter 41. So in other words, those who are in authority. The ones who are in authority are the ones who are questioning and dictating to the God of Israel what he should do. And so the Lord overturns those authorities, those false authorities, or those authorities who become corrupt. Here in chapter 40 also, verse 23, it says, By him who brings potentates to naught, and makes the authorities of the world null and void. When does he do that? When they start opposing him. When they start opposing the purposes of God and fighting against Zion. Then he makes short work of them. Verse 12, It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I with my hand suspended the heavens, appointing all their hosts. Ah, now he introduces a new element. Usually he says that he made the earth and the heavens and so forth. Now he says, I with my hand suspended the heavens, which implies that he had assistance in his creation from his hand. The hand in Isaiah is the servant, the Lord's servant, called the right hand of the Lord. Appointing all their hosts, And the hosts of the heavens were all named. They responded to his call. He calls them in chapter 40. And this creation motif, or God is creator, again, he's outlining his divine attributes as creator, but also lending that authority of himself as creator to his servant, as in the next verse, 13. It is I who rightfully raise him up, who facilitate his every step. He will rebuild my city and set free my exiles without price or bribe, says the Lord of hosts. This creator God, who made the entire earth, suspended the heavens with his hand, it is him who rightfully raises up this person, this servant, this Cyrus figure, this anointed shepherd, and facilitates his every step. Wouldn't that be great to have God facilitate your every step? That's how it was for Moses. That's how it is for any being that ascends to that level of the spiritual ladder. They've passed all the tests of loyalty to God under all kinds of duress, like King Hezekiah did, but only more so, because these ascend to a higher level even than King Hezekiah. He will rebuild my city and set free my exiles without price or bribes, says the Lord of hosts, because the rule in that day will be 
money. Have you got any money? For your money, you can be set free, or you can be absolved of your crime. But not in this case. This will be without price, or without bribe, without money. This will be pure release. The only condition, the only price you have to pay is to repent of your sins. How about that? There too we have the double precedence of Cyrus. The rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the temple, the end of chapter 44, and the setting free of the exiles, the beginning of chapter 45. Those are the two things for which Cyrus set a precedent, historically. Before that, the city of Jerusalem had never been rebuilt. It never needed to be, because it had still been in existence. Cyrus was the first to authorize the rebuilding of the city and the temple. And set free my exiles. Now Moses set free Israel's people in bondage in Egypt, but not the exiles. They were not exiled in Egypt. They themselves were not exiled to Egypt. In the days of Jacob, Jacob and his twelve sons went down to Egypt in the time of famine and were housed in Egypt and given a land and an existence there. In this case, however, Israel is in bondage not just in one country like Egypt, but Israel is in exile and in bondage all over the world, north, south, east, and west. And historically, Cyrus set a precedent for releasing Israel's captives from bondage in the whole world, in the ancient known world, throughout his empire, which extended to the ancient known world. Cyrus set a precedent for that, and this is kind of a summary or a restatement of those two roles of Cyrus, or the two roles of which Cyrus became a type. It is I who rightfully raise him up, or raise him up in righteousness, and that is also what he did for the servant, because it's the same person. He will rebuild my city and set free my exiles without price or bribes, says the Lord of hosts, meaning the Lord who has all power over the hosts of heaven and earth. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord, The wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, shall pass on to you and become yours. As shall the Sabaeans, a people tall in stature, they shall walk behind you in chains and bow down to you, entreating you, Surely God is in you, no other gods exist. Here we see kind of a class structure forming in that day between those who become thus redeemed of God and others who become, as it were, their servants. The wealth of Egypt, the merchandise of Cush, included these slaves, anciently, who served in the households of the upper class. These people become slaves. They shall walk behind you in chains and bow down to you. These people may have constituted some kind of opposition but not been part of the Assyrian scenario. They were into idolatry because they're admitting that there is only one God at the end. Surely God is in you. No other gods exist. And so there are people that are coming to some kind of enlightenment who were in some kind of heathen condition and they become part of the wealth or merchandise, part of the spoils, so to speak, in that day, for the elect. You might ask, well, are these people going to serve as slaves in the household of the righteous or the elect, the redeemed of God? The answer would be, well, maybe not in the sense that we are familiar with today. It says they will walk behind you in chains. So for a time anyway, they will be 
in that kind of condition, that it's not likely that there would be any oppression involved, but simply a consequence of maybe former lifestyles or things like that. They were probably taken captive because they had done something against people of God, but not being part of the Assyrian scenario. Somehow God allows for a third category of people there to be part of the redemption of Israel without being in it, without being first parties to it, but second parties. Verse 15, Truly thou art a God who dissembles himself, O Savior God of Israel. And this is kind of a unique verse in the book of Isaiah because God does everything covertly. Well, not everything, but much of what he does is done covertly. And how he turns the tables upon his people's enemies. And how he kind of works behind the scenes in history and through the instrumentality of nations and peoples and rulers and brings about fortuitous circumstances for his people and puts people in their place, as he does here, and brings about a beautiful redemption, a beautiful scenario at the commencement of the millennium. He does all of that. And he really doesn't come out in the fore and say, look what I did, or look how great I am. He just kind of quietly does it. And even when he personally comes to the earth, he dissembles himself. The Savior God of Israel is the one who appears in chapter 53. And he had no distinguished appearance that we should notice him. He had no pleasing aspect that we should find him attractive. He was despised and disdained by men, a man of grief accustomed to suffering. Even when he comes as Savior or Redeemer of his people to earth, he dissembles himself of who he really is. And that shows his meekness and his humility. And those attributes of God are divine attributes that we must emulate, that we may emulate. We can become meek and humble as he was and become like him in that respect. That's a divine trait. Verse 16, As one, the makers of inventions retired in disgrace, utterly dismayed and embarrassed, because they did not participate in any redemption. Even though he is the Savior, the God of Israel, the only true God, the maker of heaven and earth and everything that is in it, for them there is no redemption. What a waste. They were utterly dismayed and embarrassed because they clung to their inventions, to their idols, to the works of men's hands. They didn't respond to the servant's mission who called them away from such things. As one the makers of inventions retired in disgrace, utterly dismayed and embarrassed, but Israel, verse 17, is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Salvation is everlasting. The destruction of the wicked is temporary. It just happens real quick and it's over and they're gone. But they live throughout the millennium and beyond. Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be dismayed or put to shame worlds without end. What a contrast between the two groups. All hinging on what? The test of loyalty at a very critical time in human history. Or at any time in human history. Because God is no respecter of persons. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What happens in an end-time scenario, in principle, will happen at any time in human history, individually. It just depends where that scenario for any individual is acted out. It may be that some passed away, but they will come back and participate in that redemption in the millennium as resurrected beings. Time, in that sense, is not material. The principle remains that Israel is saved with an everlasting salvation, is not put to shame. 
The fact is that Israel is put to shame for a time. Isaiah says that in uh, chapter 61, verse 7, because their shame was twofold, and shouted insults were their lot. Therefore in their land shall their inheritance be twofold, and everlasting joy be theirs. But Israel's shame, that kind of shame, is only temporary. Salvation, when it comes, is everlasting. And there will be no more shame or dismaying after that. The test is, are you willing to be put to shame now for your testimony, for your belief, for who you are? If you are, then you can participate in this everlasting salvation. If you're not, then maybe right now you'll not be shamed because you'll be part of the establishment. That when the establishment falls and is destroyed, then you will inherit an everlasting shame. You'll have shame anyway, and much more of it. Verse 18, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, the God who formed the earth. What does this alert you to when he starts talking like this? I'm going to talk about the servant. Who made it secure and organized it, not to remain a chaotic waste, but designed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is none other. So the whole purpose of the earth being formed and the creation of the heavens and everything, as we saw in chapter 40, is to be a place of habitation. For who? For anybody? Well, particularly for his covenant people. For those who could become his covenant people and become an exalted people, saved with an everlasting salvation. I speak not in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness, implying that there are some who are claiming revelations from God in some secret places, places of darkness. Why would it say darkness? Darkness is a chaos motif, right? So these are powers of chaos that are claiming that God is speaking somewhere. And this is a polemic against those claims or such people. Otherwise, why mention it? I speak not in secret from somewhere in land of darkness. Some are claiming revelations in the name of God. I do not ask Jacob's offspring to seek me amid chaos. He actually uses the word chaos right there in Hebrew. Also, the land of darkness is the land of who? The king of Assyria, who personifies darkness. Which could imply that the king of Assyria is claiming revelation or posing as some kind of imposter of God or proclaiming himself to be God or emissary of God. We might watch out for that. I, the Lord, tell righteousness and am forthright of speech. When he has anything to say, who does he tell it to? The servant. The servant tells the people. He's forthright of speech. The servant's mission is to all nations of the world. He's the Lord's mouthpiece, as it were, to all nations and rulers in that day. He has nothing to hide. There's no secrets. There's no Ouija boards. There's no divining in dark places. Verse 20, Gather yourselves and come. Draw near all you fugitives of the nations. They who carried about their wooden idols and prayed to gods that could not save them were caught unawares. Caught unawares by what? By economic collapse, by natural calamities, by the day of judgment. And the servant is appealing to them, or the Lord is appealing to them through his servant, his righteousness. The fact that the Lord tells righteousness the servant also implies that he tells who? Anyone else who's righteous. Anyone else who personifies righteousness. As time goes on and the servant's mission takes effect, there are many who come out of 
the Lord's people who rise to higher levels and the Lord speaks to them. Why shouldn't he? But these other guys, these idolaters who pray to statues and carry them around are totally oblivious to what's going on. Verse 21, Speak up and present your case. Go ahead and consult one another. This is like the United Nations again. Who foretold these things of old, predicted them long ago? Did not I, the Lord, apart from whom there is no God? Did not I, the God of righteousness, except for whom there is no Savior? So again, they're confronted. There's a number of them. There's committees, maybe. They consult one another. And again, they can't claim themselves as being legitimate because they can't foretell what's going to happen. They don't know. But God predicted it a long time ago. How? Through the things that happened then, as in the book of Isaiah, but also through the servant. The Lord predicted it. The God of righteousness, or the God of his servant, of whom the servant is an emissary, or the God of anybody who's righteous. His people Zion are righteous. Except for whom there is no Savior. The king of Assyria, although he promises salvation, he's not going to be a Savior. The head of the New World Order, whoever that is, is not going to be a Savior. Satan is not a Savior. In that day, there will be all of these plans of salvation that are counterfeits, that are going to implement this or that program for the world, and they're all going to be counterfeits. Verse 22, Turn to me and save yourselves, all you ends of the earth. Because when those plans for the one world government are implemented, it will be a very precipitous time. And that will be the time when the servant comes up on the scene and says, Turn to me and save yourselves. Or the Lord will say through him to turn to him. Turn to me and save yourselves, all you ends of the earth. I am God, there is none other. Implying that someone is claiming that he's God. Who's that? The Antichrist, the king of Assyria. The idols are not gods, and this person, this other idol, dictator, ruler of the world, is also not God. The United Nations are not gods. By myself, I swear it, Righteousness has issued from my mouth by a decree that cannot be revoked. This creator God, this only God, authorizes his servant called righteousness, or the servant who will then personify righteousness. And nobody can change that. You can't get rid of him like you do others. Pharaoh can't just simply get rid of Moses. He has no power over Moses. If Moses were put in prison, he'd walk right through the prison doors. The same with Elijah. When that kind of power of God is manifest in the world, there's nothing anybody can do to thwart it. By myself I swear it, righteousness is issued from my mouth. The servant is also the Lord's mouth. And the servant teaches God's righteousness. Not self-righteousness, he teaches God's law and word, whose observance constitutes righteousness. And it's by a decree that cannot be revoked. There's no other way. There is only one way, the straight and narrow way to God, through the covenant that he makes with his people, through covenant observance, through the mediator of that covenant, through the servant and above the servant, through the Lord himself. In the New Testament, Jesus says, I am the way, truth, and the light. He's also the keeper of the gate who employs no servant there. You can't get around that. To me, every knee shall bow, he says, and every tongue swear allegiance. All other gods are frauds. All other authorities are frauds, counterfeits. This idea of every knee bowing and every tongue swearing allegiance 
is important in another sense, in the fact that there is no resurrection without this. You remember the principle that when there is a proxy for another person's salvation, or when there is a proxy for a people's salvation, as there was in the days of King Hezekiah, the Lord delivers the people of King Hezekiah for whose sake? For Hezekiah's sake. Because Hezekiah went through this horrendous ordeal, he had a covenant relationship with the God of Israel. The people did not. The people were loyal to their king. They kept the king's law, the king kept God's law. Then there was protection. And so it is with deliverance from death. Because salvation is a proxy arrangement, because God himself pays the price of our sins and forgives us when we repent, the law of mercy can come into operation. And when he is delivered from death by resurrection, then so may we be delivered from death by resurrection because he is our proxy. He's our Hezekiah. We cannot participate in that resurrection if we don't give him our allegiance. So that even sinners, even the people of Hezekiah who were sinners, participated in deliverance from the Assyrians because of Hezekiah's righteousness. Hezekiah answered to God for their disloyalties to him. That's why he paid such a price of suffering. And so even sinners can participate in resurrection from the dead when they give their allegiance to Christ, as manifested by the bowing of the knee and the tongue swearing allegiance. They may still be sinners, but if they acknowledge Christ, they will be resurrected. The born-again believers of the evangelical faiths are right in the sense that there is deliverance from death for them. They're saved, and they can participate in his resurrection. Verse 24, It shall be said of me, By the Lord alone come vindication and might. Before him must come in shame all who were incensed against him. There were many incensed against him, who were dictating to him and to a servant, they were trying to, posing opposition. But in the end, when all is said and done, all the confrontations have been made, and the power of God has been manifested, what is the final result? The wicked are put down, and the righteous are delivered. Just like those people who were in chains, bowing down, saying, Surely God is in you, no other gods exist. They have to admit that He alone is God. By the Lord alone can vindication and might. Vindication in Hebrew is the same word as righteousness. So by the Lord alone comes righteousness and might. If you're righteous, He will vindicate you. He vindicates His servant and He vindicates all who come to Him who manifest righteousness. In other words, keep His law and word, the law and word of the covenant. And He empowers them. By the Lord alone come vindication and might. Pharaoh had to admit that. King Nebuchadnezzar had to admit that. The king of Assyria will have to admit that. All who fight against thine will. Before him must come in shame, an everlasting shame, because they all go to damnation, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord shall all Israel's offspring justify themselves and have cause to boast. The one group goes to humiliation and the other to exaltation. And their exaltation is God's exaltation. They justify themselves in him. Because really they had no claim of their own. They were just sinners who repented. And when they did so, he delivered them spiritually and physically, and so he is their boast. They and all their offspring will praise him for what he has done for them.